right, all right, all right. Day 127. Welcome back to the Windows and Mirrors podcast. My name is Keith, and this is a podcast where we're trying to show you that the Bible is more like a window than it is a mirror. We come to it to see through it and see God, not to it to primarily look at it and see ourselves. All right. So today, um, yeah, Psalm 17 through 20, and we're about halfway through the first book of the Psalms. So remember we talked about before uh, on day one that the Psalms is actually broken up into five books, right? And you'll uh, usually see that in your Bible. It'll say book one, book two, book three, four, five. And this corresponds once again to the Torah, right? Or the first five books of the Bible. And these are written for our instruction and our blessing, right? God wants us to be blessed, but he doesn't want us to do it um, outside of his instruction. All right. So Psalm 17. And we see that the psalmist is calling on the Lord for protection. Right. Um, One of the things I think as Christians, uh, we don't do as much. We don't call on God to protect us. Right. We kind of just go through life willy nilly um, and call on God to save us or get us out of something. But we're not preemptive, right? We don't ask for protection. So look at the language that David uses here. He says, yo, the imagery is so striking. He says, yo, protect me. This is verse eight. Protect me as the pupil of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who treat me violently. My deadly enemies who surround me. So he uses this figure of speech to express his very own vulnerability, right? And it's a dope image because if we think about it, our eyes are explicitly and overly vulnerable, right? Um, A speck of dust in the pupil of the strongest among us, right, will immediately make us stop what we're doing and attend to it, right? So David uses like, yo, God, protect me as a person would their pupil, Right. And then he adds on to that and says, God, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Both of these metaphors are used throughout the Old Testament just to show like, yo, God, I need you. Right. And the crazy part about this is that folks wasn't just trying to fight David. Right. Like they weren't just trying to meet up three o'clock all right, at the bus stop. We're going to fight. No, they were trying to kill him. Right. And a lot of us, it's so hard for us to, to step into David's shoes because For many of us, I'm assuming here, like you aren't dealing with the threat of losing your life, right? For being on God's side. You're not. So if you're listening to this without the threat of persecution right now, you probably couldn't imagine this. But ironically, this was a reality for much of the church throughout history and for many of our brothers and sisters today. So if you are listening to this with the threat of persecution, this is good news for you because David goes on. And talks about one, yeah, like he's innocent. That's what makes it even worse. Like he's he hasn't done anything to deserve this. And he pleads his innocence over and over and over. And that's the worst kind of persecution, right? When you didn't do anything to anybody, but they still want your life for it. And so, yeah, at the beginning of this psalm, he pleads with God that he will remember his innocence in this situation. But by the end, he comes with the hope, right? And he says, yo, um, He shows that he's not just one who calls on God for his protection, but he knows that the best thing for him is God's presence, right? That nothing, not even death itself can take that from him. He says this at the end. He says, but I will see your face in righteousness, 
when I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. He knows that if God is with him, no one can be against them. And I love Psalm 18 because it kind of picks up and answers like David's cries, right? Like in a sense, he comes in Psalm 17 uh, asking for protection. And now he comes in 18 praising, right? So again, Psalm 18, just like 17, is in the context of a military, uh, mili- it's in a, a military context, but this is in the context of a military victory, right? So he's praising the Lord uh, for the deliverance from the oppression of his enemies. And in particularly, the psalm will say, you know, uh, King Saul, right, who he was running from for most of his life. Um, and yeah, this is very specific. So he'll go in the first few verses and say, yo, the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So aside from all the dope metaphors he uses to describe who God is, rock, fortress, shield, savior, all this stuff, the other thing I was really struck by is the word my, right? And when the authors use my in the Psalms, it shows this type of possession, this personal possession and relationship that he has with God. Now, remember, when the Old Testament authors employed the word salvation, they usually meant a military victory where God saved them from their enemies, right? So for David to use these terms here, he's saying God didn't just save a random old Joe. No, 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 no. He was saying, yo, he was saving someone who was his, right? He's like, yo, I belong to him and I love him because I belong to him and he has saved me, right? And one of the biggest comforts we have in this life as believers is not just knowing who we are, which is good, right? A man who knows who he is is really good, but knowing whose we are, right? Which is the best thing in the world, right? Knowing we're God's and he's ours and then from there he goes on to speak of you know basically the the odds were stacked against me it was like kp keith fighting mike tyson right he was in a battle that he couldn't win had it not been for god's intervening nature right so he says in verse four he says yo the ropes of death were wrapped around me right the ropes of show entangled me verse five and he but but he mentions he cried out to the lord Right. And this is the situation that God's people always been in. The God's people, the odds have always been stacked against them. You think about Egypt, you think about Babylon, you think about Assyria, you think about Persia. I could go on and on. You think about the book of Judges. Every single time he told Gideon to go back, they like every, the odds are always stacked against the people of God. But God came through. Right. And God comes through. And nonetheless, David is praising God, right? God rescues him. And the beauty of this psalm, David's salvation and and ours, is that in his victory over his enemies, it was the Lord who gave it to him, right? It was God's gracious gift and help that led to his rescue. The same is true for us today, now, as we have victory, right, over the power of darkness, over sin, over Satan, and death itself, because not of the victory we got with our own hands, but the victory that was handed to us, right? And praise, praise is the proper, fitting, and only response when we understand the gravity of the problem, right? That we were once far from God. We were once slaves to sin. We were once under the power of 
darkness and we've been transferred to the kingdom of light. When we understand the bad news, the good news is really good news. And that leads to praise. Psalm 19. Psalm 19. So um, <clears throat> Psalm 19 is one of my favorite psalms. And uh, the theology, the poetry, and the symmetry uh, make it one of the most memorable, right, in the Psalter. So he'll start off like this and say this. The heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. In other words, what the psalmist is saying here is for God, the proof is in the pudding, right? The, the work, the work he has made, the literal world he has made metaphorically speaks for itself, right? Creation, creation in the Old Testament is often uh, personified and here it points to God's glory, right? So this word glory, the glory of God is God's splendor and his beauty, right? And it shows us that somebody magnificent is behind this. If you think about the, the world we live in today, any piece of art, anything that is beautiful, we praise not always just the art, but we praise the person who created it, right? From music to, to movies, all of these things we, we uh, love, we praise the person who created it. And that's what David is getting to hear. And so, yeah, like he's talking about creation. And man, when you look at a beautiful sunset, when you gaze at the Grand Canyon, when you visit spectacular and beautiful places around the world, you are partaking in gazing at God's glory painted on the canvas of creation. In fact, so much so that Paul will pick this text up in Romans 1 and go ham with it, right? Like he he went crazy, you know, to make the point that because you can see God's glory in what he's made, man is without excuse in acknowledging the creator. Why? Because God has revealed himself in what he's made. And this is a concept that theologians will call general revelation, right? That God has generally revealed himself in the world around us, right? And so, in other words, um, theologians have even gone, gone so far as to say that nature itself in a sense, is the word of God, right? God speaks through it. We can know something about him through the world he has given us. This is why it's so, so important to uh, appreciate and get out into the world. Um, but also with that, if we can know him through the world he has given us, this text shows us and the rest of the Bible shows us that we can also know him through the word he has given us. So again, this psalm is almost split in half. So in verse seven, he switches not. He, start, he, he switches from talking about the world to the word, right? So in verse seven, he says the instruction or the Torah, right, of the Lord is perfect, right? Then he says, "Yo, the word is trustworthy." Then he says, "It's right. It's radiant. It's pure. It's reliable." But it's not just what it is, right? That's so important. But it's also what it does, right? So he'll say it renews one's life. He says it makes the inexperienced wise. You want wisdom? Come to the word of God. It says it makes the heart glad. Oh, you want joy? You think you can get joy in everything else in the world. But no, he says, yo, come to the word of God. It makes the eyes light up. You want to be amazed? You want to be in awe? Come to the word of God. Endures forever. It lasts, right? Altogether righteous. So all these things he says about the world and first the world. And then he says the word. One thing. That I think in this psalm, man, there's so many implications from this psalm. But one thing that we have to know about this psalm is that they go, uh, you know, the world and the word go hand in hand, right? While at the same time not being equivocal, right? So in other words, 
I think it's John Calvin who says that, you know, special revelation, which is God's word, is the corrective lenses we use to gaze at general revelation, right? So in other words, the best way to make sense of the world is to look at it through the lens of the word, right? We can't come, in other words, we can't come, the word is important because like we can't come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by staring at the stars. It, it just, it just won't happen, right? But on the flip side, and this needs to be heard in our day and age, if we don't seek to truly and really understand the world and how it works, at times we can draw false conclusions from the word, right? Or we can misapply the word. They go hand in hand. Psalm 20. Lastly, David opens up, or not David, the psalm opens up and says, May the Lord answer you in a day of trouble. May he send you help from the sanctuary. May he remember all your offerings. May he give you what your heart desires. Over and over again, this is the congregation, uh, Israel, right? And they start with this psalm with May. And this may, 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 over and over basically is an expression of will, right? We're actually, this is our will and this is, uh, this is us invoking a blessing over you. And this, the people are speaking to a you, right? And who is the you? So verse six tells us, it says, now I know that the Lord gives victory to his anointed. So now it speaks in the third person. And basically the you is the Lord's anointed. And it says, he will answer him from his holy heaven with mighty victories, with mighty victories, from his hand. So once again, it's talking about victory. And in the Old Testament, just a little tip, the Old Testament victory is a very, comes from the same uh, root as the word salvation, right? Or deliverance or help. So they can all have like this same uh, root or semantic range. Now the word here for vic, uh, for anointed, excuse me, is Mashiach, right? And this immediately pointed to David because he was uh, anointed with oil, and the kings in the Old Testament were anointed with oil, but Mashiach is also translated as Messiah. So in other words, this is a messianic psalm. The Messiah or the Christ is Jesus, and this points to him, right? Who ultimately, yeah, gives us the victory. Now, the irony is that the victory or the salvation is given to the anointed one by Yahweh. But when we look forward to Christ, we know that he is Yahweh, right? So God, in bringing of his son brings these two together, the anointed one from the line of David and Yahweh himself become one in the man, Jesus Christ. Now, the reason the people, this is so good. The reason the people want the king to win is because they knew they're saying, yo, king, we need you to win. We need you to win. We're invoking his blessing, invoking his blessing. All right, God's blessing is on you. Yeah, yeah. The reason they want the king to win, because in some sense, the king embodied the people. In other words, he was their representative. So in other words, he was the one, if he lost, they lost. But if he won or gained victory, guess what? They gained victory as well. And that's the same truth of the gospel. Because of Jesus' victory, because he died on the cross, got out the grave, and he defeated all every power of darkness, sin, death, hell, everything. We have the victory too. And so verse 7 comes through one of the toughest verses in the Psalms. It says, yo, some take pride in chariots and others in horses, but we, <laughs> yeah, we take pride in the name of the Lord, our God. Guys, everybody takes pride in something, 
But the difference for us as Christians is that we take pride in someone. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that nothing on earth can save us but you. You are the one we take pride in. You are the one we put our hope in because of the victory 